got a Bible, you are going to want to have it with you tonight. I promise you, it's going to be like a Bible drill tonight. We are going to be torching through so many scriptures uh, over the course of this evening. And, and I'm, just, I'm just really, really hoping that uh, by, by the end of it, you will really, truly appreciate the fullness of this story that we're going to be talking about from Esther. But before we get there, before we get there, I know that uh, some of you are here for the first time tonight. And so the first thing I want to do is just kind of review where we've been. So, Nolan, take us to that first, uh, first slide that's on fire. Fantastic. Sunday night, talked about glorifying God, which means accurately displaying God's character, fruit of the Spirit, His holiness. Uh, in the midst of difficult life context, contexts, we contrasted that against when we kind of are in difficult situations and we only pray for escape. We just want out of the situation because we figure then I'd be happy and my happiness is what God's super concerned with. And, and instead of praying for escape, we consider prayers to God to provide perseverance, endurance, the things that James and, and other places in the scriptures talk about to display God's glory while being in the midst of our ongoing difficulties. And so we took a look at the life of Joseph. We took a look at the life of Esther, kind of set up a couple of stories, and then last night, we talked about a few things that come from the life of Joseph. We talked about releasing resentments, releasing anger over past events, whether we caused them or they were caused by others, which can provide a more gracious and forgiving perspective on life, both for ourselves and for other people, because we get to see people more clearly when we're not holding resentments, no matter where those resentments are, even, even if the resentment has been self-induced, like we've caused it. We recognize that releasing resentments and anger often take time. The Joseph story, right? He's 17 as a punk kid, and by the time he is raised up in Potiphar's, I'm sorry, by the time he's raised up in Pharaoh's household, he's 30 years old when he says, God has released me from these things. And so it, it, it often takes time, but allows us to see and know, whoop, come back just a little bit there. Thank you, Nolan. I know you're happy on the trigger. Uh, allows us to see and know God in a more vivid and life-giving manner. Now, Nolan, fantastic. We briefly discussed a more biblically accurate practice of being unoffendable. Now, I'm, that's not my phrase. That's a book by a guy named Brant Hansen, uh, a, a wonderful book, very, very funny book. He's a, he's a great writer. Um, being unoffendable, releasing our perceived right to be angry or to be resentful, even when injustice happens around us, initiating a more flourishing view of ourselves as characters in God's story rather than God being a character in our story. Or put differently, it's not about us. It's really mostly about Him. Now, some of you might look at that and say, it's not all about us, it's really mostly about Him. Isn't it all about Him? And not about us at all? Well, no. God has chosen you, right? He's chosen you. He's chosen to include you. He's chosen to work through you. And so it's his story, but he's included you. He's included you in the wonder of what he is doing. And when you see the wonder of what he's doing from the book of Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation, that should be powerful stuff, that you fit in there somewhere. You fit somewhere towards the end of that story. You're part of it says that your life is a, a living epistle that people can read and that God is writing his words into your life on your heart and then those words are lived out and people get to experience Jesus. I call it Jesus with skin on, right? That's who we are. We are Jesus with skin on 
for the world that is around us. So, tonight, we're going to be looking at Esther. We're going to be in the book of Esther eventually. Eventually. We're not starting there. Because I have to give you, and I, I hold on, all right? Take a deep breath. You're going to need it because this is going to be a, a, just a rocket course in, in a little bit of history that goes before it because Esther makes no sense if you kind of don't know where some of these relationships come from. So we're going to be, begin with a little bit of history. You remember when the Israelites uh, left Egypt, went through the Red Sea, God has rescued them, everything is great, the Israelites are profoundly ungrateful to God for what he has done, and they keep complaining and complaining and complaining along the way. And one of their first complaints is, we're really, really thirsty, what's the problem? And God says, um, go until you see me standing on a rock, strike the rock with the staff, and what happens? Water pours out of the rock. The very next verses say that the Amalekites come and attack the Israelites, who are nomadic, they're wandering through the desert, Right? And then uh, God says, uh, you, need to, you need to fight back, sets aside Joshua. Joshua gets a bunch of, you know, kind of fired up guys, and they're going to fight. And Moses does what? He stands with the staff in his hand and his arms outstretched. So as long as his arms were up, Israel won. And But when his arms began to sag, Israel lost. And so they put a rock behind him that he could lean against. And then two guys hold up his arms next to him, and they win the battle against the Amalekites. I'm not going to read you all of that. That's just the summary. A lot of you know that story, or you remember the you know, flannel graph that you saw it on as a child or something, right? Uh, now, we will start, though. If you're quick with your Bible, you can go there. I will have it on the screen. Deuteronomy, chapter 25. Deuteronomy, chapter 25. God commands this to the Israelites. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you. On the way, when you were faint and weary, remember they were so thirsty, so they slowed down. They were, they were suffering from not having enough water, and then the people slowed way down because of it. You were faint and weary, and, and Amalek cut off your tail. Those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So you see the picture? There's like these slow families in the back, and they're getting picked off by the Amalekites. They're taking advantage of them, and they have no fear of the Israelites or God or any of it. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So God commands this way back in Deuteronomy. He tells the people what Amalek did is absolutely unforgivable because he did not fear God. And once you are in the land, once you are secure, once you are settled, I'm, I'm, we're bringing this back up. Don't forget about it. Now, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. This will at first seem totally unrelated, but it will all come together, I promise. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. You remember in between what happens, right? We've got Judges, and there's something called the Judges Cycle. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you feel like you're on the roller coaster you can never get off of, and it's just this loop and loop and loop, and it's like they repent, they get bad, and then, okay, so now we're coming out of that, and what, what do the people want? They want a king. Samuel, 
The high priest is not super excited about it, but they want, they want a king, and the guy that is going to be their king is the first king of the United Kingdom of Israel is a guy named Saul. There was a man of Benjamin, of Benjamin. Underline it. You're going to need to know that. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zorar, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So the Jews, they're all hanging out at 510. But Samuel, or I'm sorry, Saul is hanging out up there around 6-6, right? He is a big man, and it was unusual in that day to be that tall, to be head and shoulders above the rest of the people. Um, This is just the introduction to a guy named Saul who we know is going to be king, and he is a Benjamite. That's what I really want you to take hold of there. Now let's turn to 1 Samuel 15, just a few pages later. 1 Samuel 15, I'll start in verse 1. 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. So God has made Saul the king, and what's the first thing he tells him to do? Thus says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of the armies, the Lord of the host of heaven, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction. The word literally, that, that phrase literally means worship me with destruction. Worship, devote, be, show your devotion, your worship of me with destruction of all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, even the donkeys. The, the little donkeys are dead, right? you got to eliminate everything. Jump down to verse 7. Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. So they're probably a nomadic people, which is why they're kind of giving you that location. Huge area that they, they wipe out the Amalekites through. Uh, and he took Agag, Agag. Who is the king of the Amalekites? It's a guy named Agag. Very important note. Circle that name. You're going to need it later. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. Wait a minute. He did what? What did God tell him to do? The first thing he tells him to do, wipe him out. What does Saul turn around and do? He takes Agag, the king, alive, and he devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul, verse 9, and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So they got rid of stuff they didn't want or didn't need. And they kept all the stuff that they thought, well, this is pretty good. This will be good for barbecue. This will be good for our flocks. This will be good to intermingle. Like, we got, we got some good stuff here. We might as well, you know, keep it. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, high priest, back to him. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry 
And he cried to the Lord all night long. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. You have got to love this. This is like, I wish I could see this, you know, in, in a movie. Like, like live. I would love to see how this plays out. Uh, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, Mount Carmel. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. Saul set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, uh, like kind of cocking his head to the side, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice. Oh, we brought them so that we could sacrifice them to the Lord, your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. And Samuel said to Saul, stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, this gives us a little bit isn't it funny? I remember this with our daughter. Um, our youngest daughter was very tall when she was in junior high. You know how junior high girls grow faster than junior high boys? And so she was, she was kind of, you know, taller than all the boys that were around her. And, you know, the boys nickname girls when they're in junior high. They're calling her too tall. And, you know, whoa, how's the weather up there? Uh, and all that kind of stuff. And she'd feel bad. And she'd come home and cry. And I would tell her, you're going to high school next year. And you don't know this yet. But you're going to walk in, and they're going to be really, really tall guys, way taller than you. And you know what? They're not looking at the little freshman girls. They're looking at the tall freshman water polo player girl that you are. And I said, you just don't know it yet. Right now, you think this is horrible, but it's going to be dynamite for you in a year. And when a year later, she was like, "Woohoo! yeah, I'm, I'm, this is awesome. Um, Saul feels awkward. Being so tall, he feels shy. He hides from the crowds. He's, he's probably, if we were to put it into modern lingo, he's, he's kind of introverted. And he doesn't like all the attention. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Stand up, man, is what he's saying to him. The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission. And he said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, he, he objects, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. He completely takes what God said. Does this remind you of any, anything? It should. We'll get to it in just a second. But the people, but the people, these, those other people took the spoil. The sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, sacrifice to the Lord, your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, and this, these are some famous verses, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen to God, then the fat of rams, which was considered a rich offering. For rebellion is as the sin 
of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. He's been on the job for five minutes. And he's already lost the honor that God bestowed on him. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And here it is. Because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Who else did that? Adam. In the judgment against Adam, when he says the, the, the earth shall be cursed, you'll have pain. You'll, you'll, have to, you'll have to work and toil in the earth, and it's going to cause you physical, emotional, spiritual, you know, all of you pain. Uh, he says, because you listened to your wife instead of listening to me. And that was not a slight towards Eve. That's just to say we're supposed to listen to God first in our, in our hearts. And here's Saul repeating the sins, so to speak, of his fathers. He preserves Agag. Now, I love, I love because I work in the ministry, and so Samuel's kind of a stud. I mean, he didn't have good kids, um, and I, I do have good kids, so I'm really happy about that part. But he's a total stud, verse 32. Samuel said, hey, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Now, there should be a note in your Bible that says cheerfully could be cautiously. It could be tenderly. It could be, you know, with a little bit of reservation. Uh, the word literally means that he, he came and was kind of like, you know, hey, how you doing? I don't, I'm, not, I'm not totally sure what's about to happen. And he says to him, when he, when he approaches him, surely the bitterness of death has passed us. In other words, surely the bitterness that is between us over all the killing that's gone on, that's got to be gone, right? And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Man, Samuel was not messing around. He knew what needed to happen. Saul was supposed to do it. Saul did not have the wherewithal to make that happen. And so... Samuel took matters into his own hands, and he eliminated Agag. Now, let's move forward. We are now going to move to the book of Esther. You remember Esther? Chapter 1 of the book, she, uh, she isn't even there. Uh, it's just Vashti kind of ignoring her drunk husband and the party that's going on. And so Vashti is deposed, and then the young men in the court are like, hey, you know what you should do? You should... Go sleep with a bunch of virgins, and the one you like the most, you should make her, her queen, which seems like a profoundly bad idea, but uh, the king likes it because he probably has a sex addiction. I was, we were talking about that, right? He's probably got a sex addiction. Uh, it, it certainly seems that way. And so he, he gets this whole harem of virgins, and then he's got this whole harem of ladies he's already slept with, and somewhere along the way, uh, Esther get swept into this. All, all the verbs that, that were used again are passive. It's not, it, it's not like she had a choice in the matter. It's not like Mordecai had a choice in the matter. And so Mordecai definitely seems concerned, but has to give up who the, the girl that he adopted. He's her uncle, uh, but he adopted her as, a, as his own. And so he, he's, he's giving her over. And, and do remember, ben, ben and I were talking about this the other, the other night. Ben, right? I got that right. Ben, where are you from? Placerville. Very good. Really insightful questions that Ben was asking the other night. It got me all pumped up for tonight. Like, I got all fired up, wanted to give you a ton of the background that leads us up into this, into this point. Um, 
Okay, so um, Mordecai, and, and in that culture, probably believed that, you know, because it was such a struggle to feed yourself and to feed other people around you, you, you needed some wealth. And so to be in the, in the harem of the king was considered, like, great favor on your family. Like, if you could get your daughter to be in the king's harem, which for us is horrible, right? This is a sex trafficking story in chapter 2 of, of Esther. It's, it's a horrible truth. But in that culture, in that day and age, it was considered a huge honor. Now, Mordecai doesn't particularly display honor, but, but some of Ben's questions he was asking me, is like, Mordecai doesn't exactly seem like he's throwing up a lot of objection either. And I think both are kind of true. Like, Mordecai's not excited about it. He's super concerned for her. But at the same time, there's not, there's not a ton of objection going on that, that we see. Um, and, and so he kind of lets it play out. M Mordecai finds out a little bit later that somebody's trying to kill the king. He feeds the information to Esther. He's expected to get raised up. And then chapter 3 occurs. After these things, King Ahasuerus, if you remember, is also Xerxes historically, promoted Haman the what? The Agagite from King Agag. He is an Agagite. He is an Amalekite. And the Amalekites hate who? They hate the Benjamites because Samuel came in and wiped out all their people and left only a few behind. The Amalekites are constantly throughout history enemies of the Israelites, but primarily the Benjamites because Saul had killed them historically and so they were literally racially separated from one another, despite the fact that they were both nomads, they were both um, a shepherding communities, they, were, they both actually lived in the same area and, and were doing the same exact kinds of things. They hated each other. And so look how the story plays out. After these things, King Ahasuerus, I'm in uh, chapter 3, verse 1 now, uh, promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now remember, Mordecai just saved the king's life. And who gets exalted? An Agagite, a natural enemy of... Oh, do you remember, by the way, Mordecai back in chapter 2, right? Did you see that? Back in chapter 2, verse 5. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Are you kidding me? See, if you're a Jew and you read this, you already know because you've been brought up in all of this. You, you know all of these, you know, hatred against this group, hatred against that group, what this group is representing, who they're called, and all this kind of stuff. We in the West, we read this stuff, we're just like, whatever, Benjamite, sounds like a nice name. Um, and, and then we move on, and Agagite, we got no idea. And so I gave you all that history to show you that what we have here in chapter 2 and chapter 3 are opposites that have been pushed up against each other. I mean, Mordecai just saved the king's life, and an Agagite gets put into power. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate, remember that's where Mordecai works, bowed down and paid homage to, ha to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down. He did not pay homage to him. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate, they're looking at Mordecai standing up, and they're like, what are you doing? Why do you transgress the king's command? And he doesn't answer and when they spoke to him day after day, 
he would not listen to them. They went ahead and told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Remember, they've been in the land for 90 years. You can't easily tell Persian from Jewish at this point. They've assimilated into the culture. They're part of the, part of the tapestry. They all speak Persian. They, they're, not, they're not looking super Hebrew anymore. They're not acting super Hebrew anymore. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay him homage, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. So, at first, it's just offensive. Fills him with fury. Then, he finds out Mordecai is a Benjamite. Oh, this gets good. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. He's like, that's it. We're, this, I'm doing to, I'm Saul and them. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what Saul did to us. Oh, I'm going to do that to them. They're going to pay. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, now this, this next verse is really, really complicated. And I'm just going to grind you through it because it's kind of important for later in the book. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur. Now, Pur is like throwing dice for us. And, and that's where the word Purim or Purim comes from later in the book. There's a festival, a Jewish festival called Purim, and it comes from the book of Esther. Um, and so this is why, because he, essentially it's saying he's casting lots, right? It puts it in parentheses. That is, he's casting lots, just to make that clear. The word pur means to cast lots. Uh, before Haman, day after day. So Haman is having lots cast at the beginning of the year. And what is he having lots cast for? When should I destroy the Jews? When should I destroy the Jews? What, what do the dice tell me? What, what, what's the rule? Because they believe the gods controlled the dice. And there's more to that story too, but I'm not getting into it. And they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. This is such a preposterous amount of silver. It's, it's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pounds of silver. What is he communicating? If we destroy all of these people, they're rich. They got a lot of money. See, that was, the, that was the history of the Benjamites, right? They were wealthy. And so they were hoarding money. They were hiding in their homes. They were putting in their floors. Who else thought this? Yes, Adolf Hitler. He ransacked all of those Jewish homes back in World War II um, and, and took all of their precious, valuable things uh, to, to a horrible extent. So this, this is the same kind of heart, the same kind of evil that is, that is going on. Uh, 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business. You are going to make so much money you don't believe it. You won't believe it. That they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand. He gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. From here on out, that's how he's known, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also do with them what you think is good. Essentially, he's given a blank check. 
Well, this throws the entire city. It says at the end of the chapter that Haman and the king sit down and they just, they just drink it up. And the people of the city, they're, they're confused and they are in chaos and, and they can't see straight. It's, it's, it's almost like the leaders of the country drink, but the people experience the drunkenness. They're the ones that are stumbling around. And so we get into chapter 4 and Mordecai finds out about this. He works in the king's court. So he finds out what's going on because all of these letters are going out all over the provinces. He obtains one of these letters and he, is, he loses his mind. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, and so that's like burlap and then earth. Uh, ashes, not lit- you don't have to go get ashes out of something burnt. Uh, but it's like just throwing dirt on your head and, and, and wearing really, really itchy clothing. It's horrible is what it is. Um, it, it's, it's meant to display uh, the way I look and the way, the way I move. It, it's very uncomfortable. And, that, and that's the condition of my soul. And I'm wearing it out loud. We are totally the opposite, aren't we? We can be spiritually shattered people, morally and, and, and psychologically and emotionally broken. And on a Sunday morning, somebody walks up to you and says, how you doing? And it's like, a, it's like an instinct. It's like, you know, the doctor hitting your knee and a reflex happening. I'm good. How are you doing? And we just go right on. Not in the Middle East. When someone dies... They lose their minds. When someone's in pain, when someone's in agony, when someone's in a terrible life situation, they wear it right on the outside of them. They don't hide any of that stuff. So Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate, and he's dressed like this, and clueless Esther (laughs) finds out, and she sends clothes out to him. Because she doesn't really know why he's doing it. She just knows that her uncle is doing it. And so Mordecai, she's been queen now for a few years. And so they, they you know, she's probably established as an adult young lady. Uh, and, and, and he obviously is no longer um, um, caring for her in the same way. Mordecai, verse 8, I'm sorry, of chapter 4. Mordecai also gave him the person that came with the clothes. He said, no, I don't want any clothes. And so he gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, For the destruction, that is, of the Jews, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her. Oh, I like that. I like that. We're going to get a little power play going. We're going to get a little bit of like, you know, okay, I was her uncle. I I adopted you. I'm going to exert a little bit of dad authority. Those of you that that are in your 20s, your parents ever come to you and give you a little bit, like a little bit of a command after you've been living on your own for a long time? It's that, that's the feel. That's exactly what's going on here. You're, you're kind of like, what, am I an idiot? Like, can I not live my own life here? Uh, and that kind of thing. And so he, he says, I want you to command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Now, she's been told by him up to this point, hide it. Hide that you're a Jew so that you don't experience the prejudice that is against the Jews in the land. Uh, but, but now... He's saying, go to her and, and beg on behalf of your people. So you just know she had, she had no idea about this. And now he's telling her, I need you to come out as a Jew. Uh, you, need, you need to tell the king what's going on. And Hathok, that's the guy that's going back and forth. That is a funny little position he was in. Uh, went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathok and commanded him to go to Mordecai. Now I'm, she's going to queen up on him, right? Uh, commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. 
except to the one that the king will hold out his golden scepter so that he may live. There are pictures of this in excavations of the king holding out his scepter. And then when he wouldn't hold out his scepter, there was a guard that stand next to the throne that had a huge axe and he would simply take off the head of the person that was there and they'd drag him out and clean up the floor. Sorry to you kids. Um, This is hopefully not giving you nightmares. Uh, But as for me, Esther says, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. Ooh. She's the queen, right? I mean, the king has not exactly shown that he goes 30 days without being with a woman. And so, because of some of the story that comes earlier in it, like, this does not bode well. This might mean that her relationship with him is on the rocks. I mean, the last queen that was on the rocks was Vashti. She got deposed when she ticked off the king. And so, she's kind of saying, like, you know, I'm not so sure about this. Maybe... Maybe you should work this out yourself, Mordecai. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, verse 12. And then Mordecai told them. (laughs) She sent multiple people now, right? It went from Hathak, and now it goes into the plural, them. She tells them to reply to Esther. He tells them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise. For the Jews from another place. There's faith right there. There it is. He believes that God will preserve the people. But you and your father's house will perish. I have no idea how he knows that. I don't know if he was just kind of like throwing down on her. We're not totally sure. But he seems to be convinced that if you don't stand up right now, it's going to cost you your life. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I think every single one of us kind of feels like Saul did. I'm not that important in God's plan. But you are placed into your life by the purposes of God for such a time as this. What what does God have for you? Don't miss that. This is not unique to Esther because of the position that she is in. This is true for all of us. What is it that God is doing in your life for such a time? Is this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three nights, night or day. Now the Jews know that Esther is queen. However, do you think they're super pumped about it? I kind of doubt it because she's hiding who she is. Like, she separated herself from her own people, and now she's telling him to do what? I, I need you to fast for me. I need you to fast for me for a few days. I'm reading between the lines. Don't, don't, like write, don't write Hume and say he's totally talking outside of the Bible. I, I just mean to say, it, this seems like a tall order. I and my young women will also fast as you do, and then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I die, I die. I like it. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Up to now, Mordecai is kind of the central character, right? The king's in the background. We realize that before us as followers of God. Mordecai, up to this point, is kind of the guy that you you kind of walk with and relate with. But now Esther begins to find her voice. She begins to, to find the voice of being able 
to, to stand up in the midst of her circumstances. And so she tells everybody to fast. They do. And, and what does she do? She throws a huge banquet. Huge banquet, but just for two people. Now, Haman is probably in the throne room. So if she were to go into the throne room and just tell the king, hey, this is what Haman is up to, Haman is there. So this is a pretty complicated situation for her. So she dresses up in all of her royal garments. She stands as far away from the throne as she can, but still see it, to see into it. She doesn't actually go in the room. And I got to say, I, I, I have to admit, um, this is a defining moment in her life. I, I, I think all of us have these. We have these moments where you know you have a choice to stand strong for the gospel purposes that God has in your life, or you can withdraw. It might be in a dating relationship. It might be at school with your teachers. It might be, it might be in your marriage. It might be at your job. It might be the things that your friends do around you. It might be, I don't know what it is. But for such a time as this, Esther finds her voice. But I feel the insecurity. She stood there, you know, just across the courtyard, and he sees her. And he's like, she's all, I mean, she's all gussied up, right? And, and he waves her in. He holds out the scepter. Her life has been preserved, and she walks in there, and she invites him to a banquet, him and Haman, because she can't get around him, so she might as well wine and dine him. And she does. She does this whole big banquet. She does this huge banquet. And I mean, Haman is stoked. It says at the end of chapter five, he goes home and he said, Queen Esther invited me over everyone. I love how it says it too. Look at what it says about it. if you've got a Bible. This isn't on the screens. It says, Haman recounted to all of his friends the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him. How would you like to go to that barbecue? Like where the, the host just stands up and says, hey, I just want to tell you how amazing I am, how awesome I am. I mean, Haman, Haman has lost his noodle. And he says, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. <laughs> his cluelessness is, is wonderful in the story. It's such a setup. His wife says, you know what? You should build a gallows to hang Mordecai on tomorrow. You should, you, should, you should build it really, really high. Now, in, in ancient Persia, when we say gallows, what do you think of? Somebody being hanged, right? Um, that's, of course, what we would think of. In Persia, they would kill you first, usually quite violently. I'm not going to go into that. And then they would, they would hang you up on a gigantic, what we would call a pike. Um, and they called, you know, it's just called the gallows. And they would hang you on the pike to display to everybody what happens if you... Don't honor Haman. And so he, he's, she tells him to go make a 50-cubit high pike. And if a cubit is the length of a man's arm from his elbow to, his, to the tips of his fingers, uh, it's about 18 inches. That's a 75-foot high pike that he has put into the ground with a big pointy top so that he can slap Mordecai onto it and show everybody, you better honor me. And he thinks he is in like Flynn. I mean, he is just completely going to make this happen. That night, though, the king couldn't sleep. 
And so he asks them to read the stories of the chronicles of the, for the king, and, and he hears about Mordecai, and he's like, did we do anything for that guy? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever, like, you know, gotten a nice gift and forgotten to send the thank you card? <laughs> it's that moment where you're like, did I send the, what, what, I didn't remember this. I, I, I forgot all about it. So the king has one of those, you know, kingly kind of moments. And he realizes, I didn't do anything for this guy. I need to do something for this guy. So when Haman comes in, he says, nothing's been done for this you know, particular man. And I, I, what honor or distinction should I bestow on this person? And, and Haman just entered the outer court of the king's palace down in verse 4, chapter 6. Uh, he's going to have him on the gallows and all this other stuff. And Haman thinks, this is me. So what should be done? Haman says, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman says to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden, what does he want? He's, you know, Haman seems to have some serious insecurities. I I get that. I get that. I, I would challenge you, like, who do you relate to most in the story? Um, don't forget that it was us that put Jesus on the cross. That we're the Haman in the Jesus story. That we, we are the ones that, like Judas, lose all perspective on who Jesus is. And we take matters into our own hands. We, we decide that it's better to listen to the counsel of friends or the counsel of others, or, or just our own counsel, instead of listening to the Lord, I find, I find that I've, I've done this kind of thing where I want to be recognized, and I position myself to be recognized, and then somebody else gets recognized, which is about to happen to Haman. He's going to say, oh, all those things you talked about, do that, do that for Mordecai. And then humiliation. In humiliation, Haman has to guide Mordecai around the city. When, when all of this happens, Haman's wife says, oh, Mordecai's got the upper hand on you. You are in trouble. But what's Haman got in his hip pocket? Well, the queen invited me back for another banquet tomorrow. I'm going to get this thing settled. So she invites them both back in chapter 7. Chapter 7, let's, uh, let's read from verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered. She's talking to the king. The king says, what, what, what do you want from me? I, I, I will give you whatever you want. Just ask. Queen answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus says to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this thing? And Esther jumps up and points at Haman and says, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman right here. Then Haman is terrified before the king and the queen, and the king gets up and leaves the room. Haman and the queen are the only two in the room, and what do you think they're looking at each other thinking? 
I wonder what's going to happen next. Like, Esther's made her case, but she just revealed that she's been lying about who she is for quite a while. And, and Haman's sitting there going, this has gone really bad over the last couple of days. Mordecai gets the upper hand, and now I've been outed by the queen. Things are not looking good. The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, went into the palace garden. It's almost like he goes to get a breath of fresh air, clear his head. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, just as Haman is falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will you even assault a queen in my presence, in my own house? Clearly she looked terrified, and she probably was. As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50, 75 feet into the air. And the king said, Hang him on that. So there it was. They hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king was abated. Haman is consumed by wickedness. It says that he went out and he had all that good stuff, right? His sons, he was bragging about who he is, but he said when he, when he thought about Mordecai, his entire person changed, and he just shook with rage and fury and wanted him killed. I find in this story, when I think about what it, why, why is this story in the Bible? Like why, why is it the story of Joseph going through the process that he went through to find the voice where he could speak to Pharaoh about what, what God could do for him and, and represent God well? In the voice that, that Esther has, I, told, I was telling Ben, I, I grew up with all women, my, my mom and my, my two sisters. My dad wasn't really around. I live with only women, my, my wife, my two girls. And so I find these stories that are um, about, like, about amazing, miraculous women in the Bible. I find them to be very compelling. But a lot of you know the, the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Um, God is always at work, but he is always behind the scenes. But to the Jews, the book of Esther is second only to the Torah in its importance and its significance because, because they see the preservation of God even while they are in a place of, of, of being outside of their land, uh, in exile, separated and being judged by God. Even in those kinds of situations, they see the hand of God at work in the midst of their lives. And so they treasure this book and they preserve Purim um, even, even to this day. Um, it, it does make me think, why is this here and what does it reflect? Like, how is this a precursor to, to Jesus? And, you know, in that story, Haman doesn't end up on the gallows. Jesus does. And he does so for you and me. He does so to save us from the destruction that we deserve for being like Haman. And you could even say for being like Esther and being like Mordecai, who were not living 
uh, quite as the Jews were called to live. I find in Haman a, a Judas, and I find in Judas me. And so I find in me a lot of Haman. But because of the strategic, thoughtful, risk-filled faith that Esther shows, I think I, I find in that hope that even in situations that are not perfect, like even in situations that involve sin, even in situations where she, I mean, she was married to a foreign king, she's eating all this food that isn't, the Jews were never supposed to eat, they were forbidden to eat. It was, she was a total lawbreaker. Mordecai probably also a lawbreaker. Um, in, in, in every way, you're looking at people that did not have their lives together. They, they weren't able to. They were under oppression. Even in sin, God is at work. I find deep hope in this book. And I find deep hope not because of Esther. I find deep hope because I know about Jesus. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about why we think that the blood of Jesus is so stinking important. Why we sing about it. Don't you think it's strange to invite somebody to church? And they're like, you sing some song, we're covered in the blood, we're covered in the blood. And people are like, what in the heck? You guys are crazy. This is nutball. Why do you emphasize that? Why does it say that we, we celebrate communion? When Jesus' body was broken for us and he spilled blood on the cross and we're going to make it into a constant party at church that we celebrate, you know, maybe once a month, maybe every single week at your church, but we, we just keep this out in front of the people. Why don't we just celebrate the resurrection? Why don't we just celebrate that part? Why don't we just celebrate the good parts that are lilies and pretty and nice and we'll talk about that tomorrow. There is wonder. And there is grace that Esther prepares us for just 400 years or so before Jesus is born.